the education team for Jackson Family Wines proudly brings you these podcasts for your listening enjoyment. Hello there. Welcome to another edition of Bud Break Podcast. This is Barry Dodds. I'm here with Marcia Torres-Forne to talk a little bit about Matanzas Creek, uh, a winery for whom I am the ambassador. Looking forward to this chat, Marcia. How are you? Good. Fantastic. Marcia, I want to talk a little bit about you and uh, as you introduce yourself to uh, the JFW Nation out there. Uh, when did you first start taking an interest in wine? Ooh, long time ago. I was probably 10. Um, my great-grandparents owned a house, um, a big house, adobe, patronal house in the side of the Maule River. I was not allowed to be in that section uh, where wine was made because girls couldn't be there. Um, but my mom's cousin and the family make wine from Pais grapes that were head prune, that were planted at the side of the Maule River. So I thought that was amazing that grapes uh, go in and wine came out a year later. Like I said, that was forbidden. But when they tell you not to do something, you kind of <laughs> do it. <laughs> so um, that is it. it. I was very curious and that draw my initial interest in wine. And uh, so how, how long ago was that? We Decades. <laughs> <laughs> decades and then you joined jfw what year did you uh did you join jackson family wine so i came here in 1996 as an intern because my family is italian and i applied to italy and they they were taking a long time to answer and one of my friends from the university said hey in america they answer very fast so i did apply and i started working here for kendall jackson the first harvest in 1996 at a winery called chateau de bon and then you made your way over as a intern in the lab yeah uh yes exactly um, somebody got sick and I got uh, asked to, well, I used to manage a lab in Chile and I used to be the assistant one maker. So that was a big shift, um, managing a big facility that bottles day and night and coming here to be an intern and top an enormous amount of Chardonnay barrels. But um, they allow me to work in the lab because the lab manager got sick. I applied for the position of enologist at Cardinal. That was 1998, and by we, I started working there in 1999. And the rest is history, as they say. You've had several um, winery brands under your winemaking purview. Uh, what was the first one? Yeah, that was Pelton House. Um, uh, just Jackson wanted to produce a wine from Knights Valley, um, build a winery in Knights Valley. And we started producing that wine that was a Cabernet and Merlot. And well, and the economical crisis happened and was a new label competing with many um, well-known labels. So it was not the best timing, I will say. 
Yeah, and that wine was beautiful too, Marcia. You did a great job, and this is the reason I think that you are still with JFW. You're a remarkable winemaker that, that where there's a lot of forethought in every stage of the planning of a vintage. Um, I think everybody knows that because we taste these wines, and they're so uh, reliably good every single year. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that philosophy at uh, at Matanzas because it's always really been about different clubs. Clones, uh, vineyard sites, and uh, of course, fermentation vessels, each meant to bring out a different side uh, of the of the wine's complexity. Uh, tell us about how you do that for the Sauvignon Blanc. Sauvignon Blanc is so hugely popular worldwide, and it seems to me like the Sonoma Sauvignon Blancs are really starting to, to uh, make a stand. And the Matanzas Creek, of course, has always been a Sauvignon Blanc staple. How do you you, uh, how do you coax all of those beautiful flavors and aromas out of Sauvignon Blanc? Um, so when I took over, I was a Bordeaux winemaker. And Matanzas was already producing Sauvignon Blanc, a, s- a small number of cases compared with now. And they had the Helena bench. So the first thing um, in my mind was to visit the vineyards and see um what was done and how we can make it better and improve. So in that process, um, we taste, so we, we visit the vineyards and we decide to change the leafing and the canopy management with the different vineyard managers and asking them for feedback of how to make it better. Um, the second uh, point was investigating about the different yeasts that they were available and which one of them and we tried many and like I tell you 10 every year from which we kept the best six um the ones that were um able to produce more of the citrusy notes that I was looking for more of the grapefruit and the lemon zest and also examining when the grapes were picked because different stages in the maturity helped you to develop, help developing the grapes different precursors for aromatics. So putting a keen attention to picking times and be very precise on the picking time and not just checking TAPH um, sugar on when we are getting the samples, but also using a new technology at the time that is allow us to check the hue of the grapes and that match the precursors. Well, it's amazing how far we've come, but it does always with, especially with Sauvignon Blanc, it comes down to canopy management most of the time and pick dates. So you've spoken about the pick dates, very, very crucial. How do you manage the canopies? Because uh, you've got several different vineyards that you're sourcing for Sauvignon Blanc, yeah? Yes. So different vineyards, um, they have different sun exposure and different trellis system. So the best trellis system that allowed enough light for the Sauvignon Blanc is the Lyre um, trellis system. It's very nice, it's effective. The only thing is that you need to harvest by hand. So in the past decade, the majority of the vineyards that we have and we have planted without, within Jackson family wines is uh, VSP. So 
with the VSP, you get abundance of light. So we did experiments in the past of leafing and non-leafing and how much we leaf. Um, depending on the weather conditions that um, they were forecast in computers and almanacs. So it's pretty much taking a look at how the year will be and anticipating how hot it will be and then modifying the leafing accordingly. Yeah, it seems like whenever I have your Sauvignon Blanc in a glass, I'm greeted with a choir of voices versus um, the overgrown Sauvignon Blanc vineyards, which really stress pyrazines. I think that the way you're making this wine is really to allow the pyrazines to come through because they are very refreshing but not for them to dominate the wine so that you can really uh, see the subtleties of Sauvignon Blanc. Because traditionally, back in the old days, Sauvignon Blanc was a, a wine you made, but you didn't really bother much with the vineyards, which led to a lot of Sauvignon Blanc smelling like cat pee. Um, I don't see that too much anymore in Sauvignon Blanc. So how do you manage those canopies in VSP? Yeah, the, you get a lot of light in VSP. And especially if that canopy thin, um, mm -hmm. well, you get a lot of light, but also you get a lot of sun exposure. And when it's hot, um, you may, if you leave, you may have um, sunburn. So it's always this a very fine line that you mm -hmm. need to be um, contemplating. <laughs> so if you oh, yeah. take too little, it can be pedicinic. And if you take too much, and it is hot, you can burn and not, you can burn the fruit and you don't get those aromas. They, you lose them. You may be getting apricot and cantaloupe, but you are not gonna get citrus. So, oh, citrusy nuts. So yeah, that takes knowing your vineyard, working with your vineyard manager and um, Sauvignon Blanc love lights and love cold weather but you can modify that that vineyard canopy according to where it is and the particulars i mean every vineyard is different this is so incredible i mean we take so many pains to grow sauvignon blanc and we don't really make a lot of sauvignon blanc i'm hoping that's going to change my favorite white wine and uh, it looks like the future is pretty bright for sauvignon blanc and uh, your 21 vintage um, was a pretty, well, it was a decent sized vintage. We have plenty of wine to sell, which is very exciting. So independent of the weather, that is where we try to um, have a continuation of the same style. So the mm -hmm. style of Matanzas is, is a reductive style. We take a lot of care, the fermentations and then, I mean, the pressing is, the first thing, we protect those grapes, we put dry ice, uh, pellets of dry ice to disperse the oxygen when the juice is just being pressed and we protect it in the tanks and we don't transfer the wine often. So it ferments there and until final blend is when we pretty much move them. Of course, we consolidate tanks because the tanks ferment, but they need to be top. Um, to avoid the air. Um, but we try to minimize the movement and with that you um, keep the aromas in the 
in the wine. And the reductive style, uh, you need to be very precise when picking because reductive style um, also um, makes, when you are aiming for that style, you are prioritizing having grapefruit and guava and avoiding having cantaloupe. In any case, I I pick one lot later um, to have some cantaloupe and papaya, but the majority I try to pick um, aiming for grapefruit. And also I pick one lot early so I can have some lime and some basil, but no to overwhelm the entire blend. And this blend is made with, um, when I put this blend together, I have probably about 38, 35 different components in all different vessels to increase the mouthfeel. Sauvignon Blanc can, can, can provide so much nuance, it's, it's kind of worth the effort. Um, tell us about those fermentation vessels, though. You're using a little stainless, you're using some concrete. What, how are you making the Sauvignon Blanc? Yeah, so for the somatanzas, we make five different Sauvignon Blancs. So the concrete tanks are not for Sonoma County. They are for Journey Sauvignon Blanc and for Helena Bench that some of the audience may have tasted when when visiting. Um, then for the Bennett Valley, we use the Foudre or Panchons. For the Knights Valley, we use Panchons. Now, if it's something left from those, it goes into the Sonoma County. But the main component and vessel of the Sonoma County is the stainless steel. And the beautiful thing about fermenting in a stainless steel is that your aromatics are much higher when, than fermenting mm-hmm. in barrels. But also the Sonoma County uses uh, neutral oak, oak that has been used for seven to eight years. And the reason why we do that is for texture, right? The same in Chardonnay, yet you do batonnage to increase the texture. So that is what we do. We do an 18% of neutral oak is a large percent. A large percentage, so it has a big influence in the mm-hmm. palate of the wines and in the texture. When I listen to you speak, Marcia, it's like listening to a, a vigneron. And you know, some of us like to describe the JFW winemakers as vigneron because of the amazing amount of emphasis you place on vineyard. Uh, operations, campy management, uh, fermentation vessels, pick dates, etc. It's just uh, it's kind of fine tuning and uh, very attractive to to hear and listen to, uh, and then taste in the wine. Let's move on to the uh, Chardonnay. Uh, how many vineyards are you using for the Alexander Valley Chardonnay? About twenty. When you say vineyards, I'm assuming that you are talking about blocks because within a vineyard, you have the blocks that have the same clone and the same rootstock. Mm-hmm. So it's about 20 clones. Vineyards is is only one vineyard and it's Alexander Mountain Estate or how 
Chris uh, calls it pocket pink. Yes, uh, so it's coming really from a lot of those beautiful high altitude vineyards uh, on um, uh, the Alexander Mountain Estates, as you say. Do you uh, do you do a lot of canopy? Uh, do you play with the canopy at all in Chardonnay? I played, you know, the vineyard manager, Gabriel Valencia, does an outstanding job. So when I go and I see something, I point it out. But he has been doing uh, managing that site yeah. for quite some time. And that mm-hmm. is fantastic because it's just you you see the weather and and you can uh, mm, I need to remove less leaves. So you have a conversation and. He has been there. He knows the blocks. So it's it's super easy having him there. It's a very fast conversation. <laughs> because he's always, Gabriel's always thinking at the same rate. Uh, I mean, his timing is the same as yours, right? You think in weather, hmm, I may need to leave some. And he's thinking, hmm, weather, we may need to leave some. It's uh, um, it's teamwork yes. and and yeah. I think it's experience. I mean, you've been working uh, with those vineyards for a while now. Gabriel, like you say, has been working with them. I think over twenty years. Um, mm-hmm. So absolutely. And uh, so fermentation, you have a few different fermentation methods, correct? The main thing on the Chardonnay for Matanzas is that we press light, and um, by pressing light, you don't get yield, but when you grow fruit in the mountains, uh, they are the small berries and they can be quite phenolic, especially on hot year or drought years, um, because the berries are even smaller than the smaller than they normally are. So by having a pressing program that it's not squeezing the barrels that hard that reduce the phenolic content. That means that your wines are not bitter, that you don't have, um, you have just the pulp pretty much a squeeze. We ferment the Chardonnay 100% in barrels and we don't add yeast, so we are at the mercy of the wild yeast <laughs> that comes in the skins. And sometimes you need to wait. It doesn't start the fermentation right away. That, like in the Sauvignon Blancs, it's starting like two days and it's going. Mm-hmm. When you do native fermentation, a week passes and it starts tickling. And another week passes and you start getting worried, but it, it it's it takes some time to build up the population in order to start fermenting. So while yeast required more patient to start and for sure more patient to finish. So you we bought years ago blankets, um, warming blankets for a couple of the barrels that they were struggling fermenting because they they get colder and they are sensitive to alcohol. So we ended up buying electric blankets and covering them up. Sometimes we put them outside too for them to enjoy the sun and get a little warmer. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Well, we, we pampering Chardonnay. Yes. 
That's uh, that's a good. Well, now right? we have a we have a barrel room set up just for that. We have now a a barrel room that can allow us to put the temperatures warmer. So um, that is fantastic. So it's kind of like a spa in the cellar right now. You dial up the different <laughs> temperature depending on what you're making. <laughs> what is your approach with mallow? So my approach with mallow is um, I use the malolactic culture that allows more of the fruit to be perceived rather than the battery notes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't use the malolactic culture that was discovered at Matanzas. Funny enough, I trial it, but it's too battery for me. I, I prefer the fruit flavors like the grilled peach coming out or the chamomile. And when it's too much battery notes coming, you lose that side. Even if yeah. they are there, you cannot not perceive them as strong. Yeah. So I, mean, I use the malolactic culture that is a Laleman product that allow the wine to express more fruit. Yeah, and I mean, that's what we're really after, although it does bring to mind that there was a time in um, in America where um, cultures that you were using that brought out butter was a good thing, right? Because yeah. uh, Chardonnay made its name on butter and oak, and then mm-hmm. eventually we, uh, we righted the ship uh, to bring out more of the beautiful, uh, complex uh, characteristics of Chardonnay and that bright acidity that goes so well with, uh, with rich foods. And mallow kind of flies in the face of that. So we've, I think it's been very interesting watching since the 80s how Chardonnay has, uh, has developed. Thank you for bringing the point of acidity, um, because we... Um, like in French one maker, um, in French one making, they pick by pH and TA because they cannot add acid. Here in right. California, we are very um, we we can pick whenever we want. Basically, we can add acid. Uh, for me, I'm more like a French style, so I consider TA and pH when picking, not just sugar. Mm-hmm. And I like to keep the natural acidity of the wines. So adding acid is not what I like to do. Um, it gets me in a very bad mood, so I avoid doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I prefer the silkiness of the natural mm-hmm. acidity. And that, you know, with global warming, um, it's made me consider if this is still the right thing to do, to do the malolactic culture. Um, so this year and last year, I tried two lots with no malolactic. And the acidity was super good. And this year I did even more lots without the malolactic culture because it was so warm in California that you wanted to preserve the natural acidity. Mm-hmm. And the reason why the malolactic culture uh, flourish in France is because they, they are naturally a cold climate and they needed to drop some acidity. Right. Um, but now with global warming, I don't know if that is the right thing for California wineries anymore. So we are evaluating it. 
You know, when I when I'm talking about Matanzas Creek, um, whenever I'm in different markets, it, it, it a conversation that starts around um, prohibition and what it meant ultimately for wine in California. Because after prohibition, there was really a big void of great wines coming from uh, Sonoma and Napa which meant the, the people in America were drinking the very best of France. And if it was a white Burgundy, yeah, it was going through 100% malolactic fermentation, but the amount of malic acid, the headroom that they had was so was so high that you couldn't drink it. And it became that miracle uh, that happened over the winter where mm -hmm. the acids had softened to a point of perfection. But mm -hmm. we're not growing wine in Burgundy. We're growing wine in a much more favorable climate where acids are depleted. And yet we have to go to market with our Chardonnay to try to emulate Burgundy. And to me, that is the most amazing thing, that Chardonnay was popular as a white Burgundy, but became a rock star as a Chardonnay mm -hmm. from California. So mm -hmm. I've it's been very interesting to watch Chardonnay merge, even within our company, um, how to watch uh, the Matanzas Chardonnay grow and, and, and sort of grow with where the American palate is. Is that really what you're striving for, is that perfect balance of richness and acid? Yeah, definitely. And when you said richness, um, so I'm not necessarily looking for richness in, I mean, I like the texture and the mouthfeel, mm -hmm. but I'm aiming to have wines that are paired with food. Because in mm -hmm. my concept, maybe, you know, a Spanish Italian background, wine is food. So mm -hmm. it's, um, I think it, for me, it's very important to look for harmony and more on the mouthfeel is acidity rather than this overpowering richness. It's more elegance, what I'm looking yes. for. Yeah, it still needs to be a wine where you're expecting uh, an, a, a menu item that comes with a side of hot butter. Mm -hmm. So a beautiful job that we're having so much fun uh, with these wines in market. Now let's move on to uh, Merlot. Alexander Valley Merlot is coming mostly from obviously AME, yes? Yes. And apart from behind Verite, what we call legacy vineyards or Verite Veo. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the majority with... is from Alexander Mountain. Mm -hmm. And uh, just from the historical perspective, when did Matanzas first start making Merlot? Right when it was found it, they start with Chardonnay, but right after, uh, they were sourcing their Merlot from Sonoma Valley and mm -hmm. also from Carneros. So it was a cold climate Merlot originally. It was a Merlot that really made a name for Merlot. Yeah. Yeah, and, that uh, is totally true. And they, um, David, Remy, well, before, you know, it was a lot of experimentation in clones on the Chardonnays um, before they start with the Merlot. But yeah, um, Merlot was the the cornerstone, if you will call it. 
it's such an incredible Merlot. Uh, when you walk it out in front of people, they can't deny it. it you can put that you can put that wine up against uh, a Petrus, and they, the Petrus may outscore you, but you can buy a hundred cases of Matanzas mm-hmm. Merlot for the price mm-hmm. of one bottle of Petrus, and and have the same kind of enjoyment. And that has everything to do again with vineyards, right? So you, you how many blocks are you sourcing for Merlot, and what is the blend? So the majority, like I said, is from Alexander Valley that includes AME and, and Legacy. But I also put uh, 14% that is what I can maximum add for from Bennett Valley to add the blue notes because Jackson Park, um, that is one of our vineyards um, in Bennett Valley, has amazing amount of blue fruit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alexander Valley, we have plenty of raspberries and red fruit. The mountain has super special tannins that are like a vibrating, like a coffee tannins. Mm-hmm. And Legacy um, is very, um, has another texture that is more like broader. So I think the combination of the three with the Jackson Park fruit that is, it's very uh, Pleasant. It makes the full package. A true artiste with wine. And I mean, that there's where the blending is the most important, right? And you, you give yourself the raw materials, uh, vineyard sites, et cetera, et cetera. But then when it all comes down to it, it's really finessing. It's creating something. Yeah. Um, that is when I aim for perfection or excellence. Um so sometimes it takes you several trials. Um, you This is working like in perfumery, right? You make mm-hmm. a wine and you start building layers and layers and more layers. But yeah, it takes some time. And sometimes when you are not happy, you need to keep trying until you are satisfied. Because we have something in our mind. I, all the winemakers have a vision of where they wanted to end up. So it's a being patient and trying until you discover the what blends accommodate with each other better. And in which yeah. proportions. Yeah, you know, you you sort of gloss over the word patient over there. <laughs> uh, it always tickles me to know that you guys, yeah, well, you know, we're trying things. And, uh, well, before we can try something new, we got to wait for another crop of grapes. So it's it's not like you just run down to the store, go buy yourself some Merlot, make the wine and say, eh, I don't want to do it that way. Go back to the store, buy some more Merlot. Um, it's real patience because you you having to sometimes wait 12 months before you can make an adjustment to what you did the year prior yes yeah that is exactly true well it's also in the barrel world right knowing your barrel types matching your barrel to your fruit mm-hmm. uh, making sure that the fruit is adjusted um, so it can keep on the barrels for 20 months I mean we yeah. have a 20 months in barrels and we need to make sure that the temperature in the cellar is right, that we, those barrels are top and don't have no ullage. So it's an entire team behind the winemakers. Um, as if you have visit here, you will see, you know, we have the, la- the labs supporting us every minute and the workers, because for sure without the vineyard workers and the cellar workers, we we, we cannot do it all. Um, no. So they are they are actually our biggest ambassadors. Um, 
they help me to 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 taste barrels and decide and they are our our team it is a team effort. It, there's no way. I mean, you can make uh, great. You can make wine in a bathtub somewhere, and you don't need more than just yourself. But if you're making wines, you're putting in bottles and presenting to buyers who are tasting and 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 uh, uh, selling some of the best wines in the world. Yeah, you, you, it's a team, and everybody has uh, their own kind of self-starter attitude. We can make the best wine, but if it doesn't sell, doesn't do any good either. So actually, um, the you know, well, the sales what, team is like the crucial part. <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. And that's why we're doing these uh, podcasts to uh, bring everybody up to snuff with stories and extra little tidbits that you can carry around with you uh, as you walk around with these wines. Because honestly, the wines sell themselves. They are so gorgeous. Phenomenal job, Marcia. Tell me a little bit about the fermentation and barrel aging uh, of the Merlot. You've alluded to 20 months, but uh, how much new oak? Uh, but neutral oak and is this all tank fermented yes so we ferment um in tank we do three days of pure cold soak we add the yeast at day number three um then it takes two more days to kick in and i start fermenting the temperatures uh of the fermentation and about 85 um, but in some years i reduce or reduce that temperature because extraction and temperature are related higher the temperature more extraction but you lose aroma so you always need to be uh conscientious about what the final outcome you want for a particular lot. Some years, the extraction of tannins and color is harder than others. So you need to do work the skins more. So the common rule in Sonoma and Napa is two pampovers per day, two minutes per ton. But you modify that depending on the vintage. Sometimes you need to do a belestage. That means a rack on return of your grapes because the extraction is slower in particular years. And in order to extract the tannins and the colors, you need to move the juice through the skins. And if you move it too much, you can over-extract the wines. And if you move it too little, the wines don't get enough color. Um, also, when you are finishing the fermentation, you need to make sure that you don't um, get like these dry tannins. Well, so if you pick up on time, you shouldn't get dry tannins, but it happens with harvest when they are too hot, that there is a more tendency to get dry tannins. So when every day we taste the wines, every single day, all of the lots get tested, evaluated and change the pump over regime. And then yeah, that is why we have beer at the end of the day, because we can mm-hmm. drink more wine. We are done. <laughs> and then um, when the fermentation is finished and it's getting drier, you need to make sure that um, the wine is not hollow. Then you need to leave it on a skin. So try to... Um, extract from the middle to, to build up the middle. Um, and then you need to drain and press so you avoid having those bitter tannins and dry tannins at the end. And we basket press everything. So it's a gentle press. And then we let it basket sit there press. with rackets and we put it in barrels when the malolactic fermentation um, is done in barrels. Unless so, the wine 
has something that we need to treat in tank. Like, for example, we analyze bread before putting it in barrels. And if we have few colonies, we will do the malolactic fermentation in tank and keep it in tank until uh, that bread goes away. This is back up to basket press. Say what? How big are those presses? Oh, they are small. They can put about um, maybe one tank of pomace of mm-hmm. 15 tons. You and they two... keep going all day long during harvest. Marcia, just one more question. What are you working on right now that's exciting you? New vineyards, new wines, anything in the hopper coming at us? As soon as I finish this interview, I'm putting together the 2021 Menlo Alexander Valley. Mm-hmm. So I have uh, all my samples aligned. Um, we are also looking for new vineyards uh, for Sauvignon Blanc. So that is another mission that we are looking into um, growers here um, in, Ale- in Sonoma County. No rest for great winemakers. Keep it up, Marcia. It's been great having a conversation with you. I look forward to our next one. Uh, Meanwhile, thanks, everybody, for joining us on Bud Break. Uh, This is Barry Dodds, your host today, saying thank you, Marcia. We'll see you soon. Thank you, everyone, and have a lovely day. Thank you, Barry. Thank you, Marcia. Bye. Bye.